are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Man, this passage was heavy, I have to say. It was heavy. And um, it, it took a lot of prayer. It took a lot of kind of thoughtfulness in trying to word this in a way that, um, that, that I know is from God, but also in a way that would encourage us and equally convict us too um, to walk the gospel line and to understand what he wants us to do as his faithful followers. And so I, I hope that you know, as you hear the next several words of the sermon, that you would really hear it with, a, um, with an open heart and with an open mind and know that you know, ask the Holy Spirit to give you discernment as you hear it, okay? Um, you know, when we, when we don't want something, we throw it away. When things are an inconvenience, we throw it away. When things go against the plans that we have made for ourselves, we throw it away. When it distracts us from, the, from accomplishing our personal goals, our ambitions, we throw it away. And people, I'm not talking about bad habits. I'm not talking about old t-shirts. I'm talking about children. We live in a day of throwaway children. And I can give you story after story of what we do as individuals and what we do as society. Society is what we do as a world and what we do to children. Many years ago, there was um, a woman who called child services, protective services, to come and get her 13-month-old baby. Why? Because she simply did not want him anymore. You see, she says she was young and she had plans. And the baby, well, he was an inconvenience. And she said, I should have just aborted him. She vocalized the tragic words that have been thought and felt by many people, both men and women, who have found their lives suddenly disrupted by the appearance of another life, a child's life. On a larger scale, in America alone, over 56 million unborn children have been aborted, thrown away, ever since the Roe v. Wade 1973 uh, court case. And before we start justifying ourselves as we, as sinful people, are really good at doing, we'll say, well, what about incest and rape and health problems? Well, I'm going to give you guys some statistics. 21% abort because of inadequate finances. 21% abort because they're not ready for responsibilities. 16% abort because the woman's life would change too much. 12% abort because there are problems in the relationship like being for instance, unmarried. 11% abort because the girl was too young or immature. 8% abort because children, their children are already all grown up and the baby was an accident. And only 3% abort because of health problems for both baby and mom, and less than 1% abort because of rape and incest. That means out of the approximate 56 million babies aborted, since 1973, if you take out the health issues and rape, which, by the way, there are countless stories of women giving up their own lives 
so that their child, regardless of how they came to be, could have a shot at life. So let's not try to justify any scenario to abort a baby just yet. But out of that 56 million abortions, 53,760,000 babies are aborted simply because they are an inconvenience. That is more than the population of South Korea. It's almost the size of the population of Italy. And before we start condemning these men and women who have taken such a tragic way out, over nearly 42%, almost half of all who had an abortion have classified themselves as Protestant Christians. That means you and me. It's not a religious issue. It's a sin issue. It's a sin issue, folks. But praise be to God. I believe many people are starting to pray. Many people are starting to voice their opinions against this horrendous, horrendous genocide. Every year there seems to be a steady decline in abortions. Praise the Lord. In fact, many people now, ever since Obama took office, began to, have begun to identify themselves as pro-lifers than ever before. Thank God for the people, selfless people, who continued on with their pregnancies, who continued on with life, who continued on to fight to save, to save the lives of those children. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first child, and we, for the first, second, and third entire Duration of the pregnancy, we had complication after complication. We had so many pre-term um, labor. We, she, had, she was possibly, at one point, uh, several points, diagnosed with ectopic pregnancy. All these harrowing, difficult situations where her life was at risk, where the baby's life was at risk, where every single day we would just pray to God that we could hear a heartbeat. And I recall the week prior, our due date, and my wife, she looked at me, and she said, whatever happens, you save the baby first. Whatever happens. Now, as a pastor, as a Christian, I, I would hope that I can just stand before you and preach life, life, life. But when that was posed to me that day, that moment, I have to say, I, I, I kind of buckled. It was difficult. So how can, I don't know if I could do that. But there are countless people, countless women, who have fought and have sacrificed and surrendered their lives, their well-being, and have gambled or risked everything so that their child, their unborn child, would have a fighting chance. Praise God for people like that. And I pray that we would also be those people who would fight and pray for justice. Do you know how? Not by condemning these people, but by loving and seeking to help frightened and hurt mothers and fathers, to support them and lead them to the freedom that only Christ can provide. But you know what? Sometimes it's possible to do even more than save a life. Sometimes it's possible to adopt a child and give them a whole new life. Adoption is difficult, but it's beautiful. 
And it displays the very move that God made for us, adopting us into his family and giving us full rights as the sons of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, in Christ Jesus, you are a son of God. Remember, we're not being sexist, right? Okay, just making sure. I don't want to have to give that sermon again. Now I bring this up because of what our text speaks of, that in his grace, God has adopted us through Christ. In other words, if I were to ask here who was adopted, I hope that every single one of you here would raise your hand as a child of God. I am adopted. Praise be to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been trekking through, us, through with us through the book of Galatians, you'll see that goes pretty deep. And some of these passages are actually quite difficult. And this text is really no different. From this text, there are three points I believe the Lord wants us to hear today. Okay? And the first is this, that Christ frees us, but religion enslaves us. That Christ frees us, but religion enslaves us. Say that to your neighbor. In this day, the only religion that really is tolerated is the religion of pluralism. I'm sure that you have seen that bumper sticker, coexist. Coexist, where each letter is replaced by the symbol of all the world's major religions. Now, what that sticker isn't just saying is we should be nice. I believe even as Christians, yes, we should be nice. We should be able to love our neighbors despite their different views in uh, truth and who God is. But what that sticker means to say is that all religions are the same. Same God, but different name. So why can't we be friends? It's like making your own Sunday. The ice cream is the same. You just prefer different toppings. Well, that's not what Christ is about. He's not a different topping. That's what religion is, though. So here in the context of our passage at the end of chapter 3, if you recall, we discussed the role of the Old Testament law. Remember how Apostle Paul said it was like a guardian given to us to keep us in line until Christ appeared? And we get that guardian word again mentioned in verse 2 of this chapter. But this chapter digs a little bit deeper because in verse 3, Apostle Paul says that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In fact, Paul uses the concept of enslavement or slavery multiple times here in verse 1, 3, 5, 7, 8, and 9. He's speaking of Spiritual slavery. Spiritual slavery. In other words, what religion does to us and the religion that we've created within us does to us. Now give me a few minutes so that I can explain that. Among the Galatians there, there are two groups of people that Paul's addressing. Who are they? Two groups. Two big groups. Always. It's always these groups. The Jews and Gentiles. Very good. So regarding the Jews, Paul's saying... Even though you are physical descendants of Abraham and that you are actual heirs of God's covenant, he points out that you are still no different from a slave because you're still living under the restriction of the law. You, even as someone who receives inheritance and all this stuff, and you as physical descendants of Abraham and you think you're the chosen ones and all this, you're still a slave if you follow the law. Then to the Gentiles, the words of Paul took on a different meaning because the words elementary principles have a different meaning to the Gentiles. The basic elements are earth, fire, wind, and water, or air and water. And in the heavenly bodies, it's the stars, it's the moon, it's the sun. And so for the pagan world, 
All these things, the moon, the stars, all these elements were kind of considered spiritual truths. They're considered spiritual realities. And honestly, it's no different today. Because they think long time ago that the sun and the moon was, if you were to worship them, you would receive some sort of revelation. You would receive truth. You would draw closer, nearer to your God and to the reality of who God is. But today, you think, well, that's far different. We're not as archaic and primitive in our thoughts. Well, here's the thing. As scientific and knowledgeable as we may be right now, we still, as we continue to explore the universe, still explore it because we are seeking truth. Don't we? We explore the universe, the worlds, the planets, everything, because we're looking for an answer to life. Somewhere out there, as advanced and modern as we are today, our thoughts on seeking truth and reality is no different from the ancient pagan civilizations that literally worship the stars and the moon. And so the Gentiles who worshiped pagan idols thought that there was spiritual power and that there was spiritual significance in all these things, in the elements, in the heavens. But we all know that outside of God, anything and everything will only lead to spiritual darkness and will enslave them. Only God frees us. You see, Jew or Gentile Apostle Paul, he saw this similarity between the two, that they were both slaved, enslaved by their own religions. Now, when we think of godless pagans or unbelievers who don't possess any moral compass, we think, well, clearly they don't know God, and clearly they're ignorant of truth, and they're enslaved by sin. But according to this text here, so is the conservative, law-abiding, religious, church-going people who live out out of their self-righteousness and the merit of, I am good enough, and I can do good enough. I can do enough. Both lives, if not flowing from the work of Christ, will only enslave them rather than free them. If you're not working through the righteousness and the merit and the work of Jesus Christ, you are only living for yourself, thereby living through and by your self-righteousness, which will always fall short. It is only through Christ. And so today I ask you this, what is enslaving you? What is your reality that you believe you must pursue at all costs? What is your moon and your stars? What is your heavens? Maybe for some it's the reality of relationship or marriage, that if I can get him or her, then I'll find freedom in my life. I'll find purpose in my life. I'll finally be loved and accepted and adored. Maybe for some it's the reality of money and success, that if I can get enough to fill my bank account with a certain number of digits, then I'll, or if I have a title next to my name, a doctor or a lawyer or MBA or whatever, then I'll get the freedom and value in my life that I've been looking and searching for. Maybe for some it's the reality of respect, I just want people to start listening to me. I want people to start understanding me and taking me seriously. I want all that because I want to find purpose. I want worth. And I want that kind of um, respect from people. Maybe for others, it's the reality of just life is about me. Forget about making sacrifices. Forget about the feelings of others. Forget about inconveniencing myself. I'm here for myself and myself only. And the sad truth is that behind all these realities is that none of that will free us. None of that will give you the contentment and the satisfaction that you're looking for. None of that will give you the peace and the happiness and the joy that you, that you want. None of it. It'll only enslave us deeper and deeper and deeper into the web of lies and the religion of slavery. 
Our second point, and this may seem like a bit of a non sequitur, but is that in Christ, God, he adopts us as sons. Now, you've heard me talk a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, but this is when we really get into the meat and bones of it. This is something really special. It's, it's, there's something really special about adopting a child. Honestly, Grace and I, we hope that one day we can we can walk through that experience I know a lot of families have before. And the reason why adoption is so special isn't just because you're adopting someone. It's because it actually represents the Father's heart. It's a wonderful representation of God's amazing father, fatherly love for his people, for you. So from this text, we get a couple of truths about God's adoption of us. First is that he sent his son. So who is the son? Who is the son, people? Jesus. Thank you for saying it so confidently. <laughs> he was sent from the Father, meaning that he dwelt with the Father prior to the incarnation or taking on the human flesh. In other words, his birth. Jesus was the eternal son of God. He was born of a woman, which meant that he became human. He became like you and me, like us. But he was also born under the law, as Paul was writing. So he, too, had to live under the submission and the guard of God's law, just like everyone else. And guess what? He did it perfectly without sin. That's Jesus. So he came first to redeem those under the law. And like Paul mentioned before, the law it represented a kind of slavery. So Christ, he came here to buy us out of slavery. But this was all done so that the Father might adopt us. So let me, let me so hear my sequence out. Redemption had to come first. In other words, our sins had to be paid first, removed, cleansed, wiped clean. But at the same time, Christ, he does other things too before adoption. He justifies us. In other words, he declares those who believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ to be now in right standing before a holy God. And through this, we receive a new birth, which means we receive a new life and a new heart. And all these things are the things that Christ does for us on our behalf. That's why we call this the work of Christ. He does all this. And the whole time, we're just, all we have to do is just accept it, believe it, embrace it, love it, worship him. He works for us so that we might be adopted, brought into God's family, given a new status, given a new identity as sons of God, adopted by the Father. I remember reading uh, of a moment, the reality of adoption clicked for a parent who had adopted their child. They were standing before the judge. The judge pronounces kind of this new order, changing the child's status and making the child the son of the adoptive parents. Your name is no longer something, something, is, no, is now Benjamin, so on. And that's like what God does with us. Even though we've gone so even though we've strayed away, even though we've sinned against the Father, even though we deserve judgment and punishment for our sins, Christ comes along. His work is completed, and there we stand before God, receiving a new verdict, a new order, a change in status, a new name, no longer enemy of God, but his child. But what's more is that through that adoption process, God, he also sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, the Holy Spirit. So one way to understand the differentiating roles within Trinity, you can think of it this way. God the Father wills it, God the Son executes it, and God the Spirit guarantees it by applying it. You see, 
Jesus was sent into this world to accomplish an objective on our behalf. But God, he sends his spirit into our hearts to guide us and to change us and to give us the experience of being children of God. The Holy Spirit wants you to experience and to know and to feel the joy of being a child of God. Tim Keller, he summarizes this well. He says, the son's job, meaning Jesus, is to make us sons, whether we feel like it or not. It's the Spirit's job to help us appropriate that, sub that subjectively so that we may experience it and to understand it. Now, when you're going through a difficult time in your life, and maybe you're questioning your identity, your self-worth, your purpose, you can absolutely claim, I know I'm a child of God. And we ought to do that. But amazingly here in verse 6, we're told something that we cannot claim because it's something that in Christ Jesus is already happening in us. It's something that we experience, and that's what this verse says. It says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that what God promises to us is the experience of sonship. And let me ask you this. Have you experienced God? No, no, no. I'm not talking about, oh, no, Pastor David, I can quote Romans. I can go ahead and tell you all the theology. I can go ahead and, and quote you past, uh, word for word of, of, of Grudem's uh, systematic theology. Oh, I know God. I know the character of God. I know the functionality of God. I know, I know all that. No, I said, did you encounter? Have you encountered the holy God? So that you know you are his son and that he is your father. It is so different from someone who theoretically knows him and someone who intimately knows him. Like, I know you've heard me talk about truth of Scripture, truth of God, that we should not just rely on emotions, not just rely on our experience, but we need a balance here. Because the Spirit of God causes us to feel like God's adopted children, too. You know what's sad? Is when you read stories of adopted children who say, you know, I understand, I, I, I appreciate and I love my parents for adopting me and for giving me all the things I need, um, the tools I need to grow and to mature and become an adult. They've given me a roof over my head. They have given me food to fill my stomach. They've given me uh, shelter. They've given me clothes and all that stuff. But at the same time, I never quite felt like a part of the family. And that was the experience of my friend up in Chicago who was adopted into a large family. He has six older brothers and three older sisters. And he was the youngest. Everyone else was biological, but he was adopted. And he felt that he never felt like their child. Instead, he felt like they were his foster parents. And he was just ready to move along to the next stage in his life, even as an adult, even as a college student at that time. So what does this verse mean? Does it mean that to experience God simply means to make noise? Abba, Father! That's not the point, but it does describe something only a child could experience with their father, and that is intimacy. Intimate communion with the one who loves me and adopted me, the one who listens to me no matter what, the one who will halt everything in their busy schedule to give me attention, the one who will sacrifice all things to make sure I get what I need. My God, my father. You know, the other day, 
my wife, she, um, she bought my daughter a little play tent. Last night, my daughter, she wanted some milk, so we got her some milk. And the next thing she wanted was me to join her in that tent. Now the thing is small, and I am not. So she got in, and, and I tried to get in, and I laid down, which meant from my head to my chest was inside, and everything else was outside. And I just laid there, and then she laid down in my arms, and my poor wife was over there. She couldn't join us. And she laid down in my arms, sipping her milk, and we were both just staring up into the canopy of the tent, and I asked her, are you happy? And disrespectfully, she goes, mm. <laughs> and we teach her how to respond in proper, like, Korean words with other people, but with us, it's always like, uh, yeah. And I said, do you love me? Again, mm. I said, is the milk good? She said, mmm. <laughs> like, how can I adequately explain the in intimacy between a parent and a child? Honestly, adjectives fail me. But all I can ask you is this. Have you experienced such a thing with the Lord? Is there intimacy between you where in those moments there is truthfulness, there is contentment, there is just the knowing that you are loved by your Father, and that when you're in His arms, that you just know that you're His. Have you encountered that? Christianity is not a dry religion, people. It is filled with tears. It is filled with joy. It is filled with emotions. It is filled with knowing that you are the son of God, that you are a daughter of God, that you are a child of the Most High. There is such intimacy. And we get to know that the Spirit of God is working within us, assuring that you belong to the Father, helping you, moving your heart to pray and to commune with him. And when you're intimately entwined with the Father, you start to experience joy in the midst of suffering. You begin to experience contentment and satisfaction in the midst of confusion and loneliness. Why? Because he's holding you. And he's saying, is it good? And this leads us to our last point. It's an admonishment. It's a warning from Apostle Paul. He says, in light of all that you've just heard, he says, don't go back to that slavery. Don't go back to those things that have kept you away from me, things that have enslaved you. You know what's hard to do? Dealing with people you love who make just bad choices. And that struggle was real with Apostle Paul according to verses 8 through 11 because he reminds them of their life before they knew Christ or more accurately before they were known by God. He reminds them of the slavery that they were in, slavery to pagan religion, slavery to truths that were not truth at, or no truth at all, slavery to spiritual powers of the elements that were demonic because it led them away from God. All these things that shackled a person's life 
But these Galatians, they've heard the gospel before, and they believed in Jesus before. They believed that God sent his son to atone for their sins. They believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They know that they were adopted as sons of God. So we learn in verse 10 that these people were considering, despite all that, experiencing God, knowing who they are, that they were planning on returning back to slavery. And how do, we know, how do we know that? Because it said that they began to observe the days, the months, the seasons, and years. In other words, they began to take the Jewish leader's advice and began to live in accordance to those restrictions and to those rituals of the law that Apostle Paul was saying, don't follow anymore. They're going back. They're regressing. Now from verse 8, it's interesting how here how Paul uses the word God. There is the lowercase and the capital or uppercase God, G. And he reserves the word capital G for the true God, but at the same time, he still mentions the lowercase G gods too. Now what's the big deal? I think Paul's aim is to not deny the existence of these lowercase gods, but by capitalizing the G for true God, Paul's saying only the true God holds true power and who's the only one qualified to be worshipped. But what's the danger that you and I are facing right now as you hear me? The danger of returning back to slavery really depends on what we define as God. Who or what do you think will save and love and comfort and lead and provide and grace and bless and die for you? What's your lowercase g God? Is it comfort? Is it addiction to pleasure? Is it a desire to be loved by someone? Is it money? What is it that you keep going back to because you find you found comfort in it? It's, it's something that you're, you're used to. You've been freed from the bondage of these lowercase gods because those idols are false. They are misleading. They cannot love you back. They cannot do only what God can do. Maybe you surrendered to God some time ago, but maybe you feel it creeping back up, and Paul says, don't go back to it. Whatever it is. You feel like it's creeping back up. Don't go back to it. Don't get enslaved again after having tasted the joy and freedom of Christ. Do not go back, he says. So how can we safeguard ourselves from returning to slavery? We need to remember what you were when you pursued after the false gods of your life. That we were struggling. That we were empty and going through cycles of destruction. But through Christ, you need to now remember what you have become. John Stott, a theologian, pastor, commentator, wrote about John Newton. Do you guys know who John Newton is? The one who wrote Amazing Grace? He said this, talking about John Newton. He said, he was the only child and lost his mother when he was seven years old. He went to the sea at the tender age of 11 and later became involved in the unspeakable atrocities of the African slave trade. He plumbed the depths of human sin and degradation, but when he was 23 on March 10, 1748, when his ship was in imminent peril of floundering in a terrific storm, he cried out to God for mercy, and he found it. He was truly converted 
And he never forgot how God had mercy upon him, a former blasphemer. He sought diligently to remember what he had previously been and what God had done for him. And in order to imprint it on his memory, he had written in bold letters and fastened across the wall over the mantelpiece of his study the words of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. Thou shalt remember that thou was a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. You shall remember you were a slave in Egypt, and God has now redeemed you. Apart from Jesus, religion and all other idols in life will and has enslaved us, but in Christ the Father adopts us and we can cry out, Abba, Father, and have true intimacy with him. And when we have that intimacy, we experience the realness of the Spirit of God. Therefore, let us never, after having tasted the freedom that God gives, ever return back to slavery. Amen? Let's pray. Father, there are no words to express the guilt and the dirtiness that we experience every time we break your heart. Lord, it's overwhelming. But as the Spirit of God in us allows us to cry, Abba, Father, Lord, we want and we need that intimacy. We need your touch right now. Father, I'm sure that many, if not all of us, are sick and tired of being born again and still doing the things that we hate doing. Still living lives that are unpleasing and sinful. And so like Paul We do not do what I want, but do the very thing that we hate. So, Father, what can we say but sorry? But, Lord, we seek your grace and your mercy, and we ask for your forgiveness right now. And, Father, I'm sure many of us are shocked that even in our lives right now, we have come to a point where even some sins don't seem to affect us at all. The things that perhaps a year ago we said, this is horrible, and I repent of it, now has become almost just a part of us. Lord, these are the layers that need peeling, and the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would chip away, even if it hurts. Tear down that wall. Break through that barrier, Holy Spirit. We want a heart of flesh that is 100%. Lord, because this hardness, this callousness, Lord, that has been built up is something that we just can't stand for anymore. And so, Father, we love you, but we're also so sorry for our selfish actions where every time we sin, we don't think, how will you think of this God? But instead we think, how will this, how will we enjoy it? Our centeredness has become centered upon us. But Lord, we don't want to walk in guilt, for that is not of you. 
Instead, we want to walk in your forgiveness. And we thank you for your forgiveness. We want to walk in your truth. And we also want to walk in your grace. Lord, because without your grace, we are nothing. And without your forgiveness, Lord, we are nothing. But with your forgiveness, we are whole again. And with your grace, we are made right again. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys an opportunity like we've done before to take a minute or two and to lift up a prayer of repentance to the Father. What are you going back to? The Lord says, do not go back to it. You have experienced me. You have found me. You have tasted me. You know how good I am. Do not go back to it. Come to me more, he says. Renounce and rebuke and reject these small, lowercase g gods of your life and say these things are nothing but fallen, broken, wicked idols and they have no place in my life. Holy Spirit, take everything, full residence of my being. Let's take a couple minutes and pray and we'll go into our time of communion. So the message of the Lord's Supper is one of self-examination for the Christian. Soberly, thoughtfully, prayerfully, faithfully. You want to approach the Lord and you want to make sure that everything is right between you and Him. You see, God, He wants you to take this time to judge yourself, to evaluate yourself. Don't rely on your accountability partner. Don't rely on your pastor. Don't rely on your mother, father, your sister, your brother to, to point out the sin. No, right now it's not between them and you. It's between you and God. And if you want to come before God, you have to come open and expose and be vulnerable and transparent of your sins and transgressions and say, Lord, this is what caused your son to be on that cross and to die for my sins. Forgive me, Lord. But thank you for sending your son to die on my behalf. Let's take another minute or two and pray in preparation for the communion. For those of you who have expressed faith in Christ Jesus, in his work, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and you believe it, and you are born again, you are renewed, mind, body, heart, soul, you are a new creation if you trust in God and you trust in who he is and the forgiveness of your sins and now you now walk in the path of grace and mercy and righteousness and you can come forward and join us during this time of the Lord's Supper. So take a moment and pray and then please join us.